around the world report inconsistencies in their favorite stories. Are they real, or just a result of having way too much time on your hands? The internet searches for answers on Suck My Fan Theory. In the 1970s, London was a hotbed for revolutionary candy making. Many sweet names and big candy came out of this period, but the hottest tamale of them all was Willy Wonka. No one could even touch Willy Wonka. He set the precedent for eccentric visionaries. In fact, many people have even called Steve Jobs the Willy Wonka of the personal computer. Perhaps best known for his unorthodox secession plan, Wonka is a name that isn't likely to leave the tips of our tongues for some time. The global chocolate magnet built his world-famous brand based on childlike wonderment and an innocent persona. New research into his life and candy empire have revealed shocking developments, proving that this chocolatier was more sour than sweet. They tell a story of intellectual property theft, discriminatory business practices, and even murder. If you were to talk to people who knew him from the beginning, they would tell you the real story of Sir William S. Wonka. Former associates who apprenticed with him under Milton Hershey saw a different side of the lovable, top-hat-wearing, sugar-coated visionary. A man capable of climbing the corporate ladder in a cutthroat industry. A man who was willing to take any idea he was able to get his butterfingers on. Charles Catterbury is a man who worked alongside Wonka when they began their journey in the candy-making business. He now owns a small, moderately successful candy shop in suburban London. For years, he was afraid to speak out. Wonka Company is one of his biggest suppliers, their products flying off his shelves. He feared any form of retribution from the multinational conglomerate. But our investigation has provided him the platform to burst Wonka's double bubble. I'll never forget Willy Wonka, or, uh, Bill, as we used to call him. Man, I was best friends with that guy, including our friend Slugworth. We were like the three musketeers. That first day when Bill somersaulted through the door, I knew that guy was just different. He comes off as an airhead to the public, but he's not actually like that at all. Bill could talk to a brick wall, never forgot a thing, always bringing up any details he mentioned in conversation. He never really was that good at making candy, but he had a taste for business, always predicting the next big thing or anticipating the market. Had this manic energy about him, you know? He'd be laughing and joking with you, but if you pressed the wrong candy button, he would just turn into an atomic fireball. This mixture of social aptitude and emotional volatility is common in serial killers such as Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Manson, and some say Richard M. Nixon. I remember one time I told him about my idea to put schnozberries in candy. The next day, he had a prototype and was telling everyone he came up with it. I used to think I was the only one he ever screwed over, but he stole a lot of paydays from some great creators. I get it. You can't climb that high without breaking a few jaws, but I haven't said anything. If you speak out against Wonka, you'll be sleeping with the Swedish fishes in no time, if you know what I mean. Although everyone in the candy industry knew of Wonka's ruthless, caramel-covered tactics, that didn't stomp Wonka's rise to fame. It was in the late 1950s that he released the Wonka Bar, a chocolate like no other. 
It has even been documented that the national rate of cavities increased proportionately to the Wonka Bar's sales growth. It had a sweet taste unfamiliar to many Western audiences, made by the cocoa from special trees only found in the lost continents of Africa. How did Wonka get this proprietary chocolate, and what was he willing to do to keep it to himself? Was Wonka on an inventive Tootsie Roll, or was he merely a common criminal? Documents recently uncovered from an archive in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, prove that Wonka reached new heights of depravity in the pursuit of the best chocolate in the world. Soon after completing his apprenticeship with Milton Hershey, he journeyed to Africa, looking for the sweetest bite to eat. Stopping at nothing to satiate his desires, he found a tribe of African pygmies, tricking them into indentured servitude and taking their special strain of cocoa tree for himself, uprooting all known saplings and planting them in his factory. At first, the Africans believed they were getting the opportunity to move to the modern world and start a better life, but quickly, they found themselves feeling like a bunch of dum-dums. Every day working for Mr. Wonka felt like another day in hell. We uprooted our families and thought we could give our children better lives. We signed contracts. He said that if we worked for him for seven years, he would give us enough money to settle down and buy our own houses. He promised us the moon pie and we believed him. After months of working 18-hour days and only being paid in chocolate and candy cigarettes, I developed a two-pack-a-day habit. We realized we were likely never going to make it past the first few years. Thank God the chocolate river flooded, forcing us to flee the factory into the streets of London or else no one would have even known about what was happening to us. I swear that saved our lives. Many pygmies were also thankful that they weren't in the U.S. because they knew that Richard M. Nixon and his pro-business policies wouldn't have helped them a bit. Scandal rocked the Wonka brand. The public began protesting, insisting that they didn't want any Wonka candies now or later, until things were changed. Reluctantly, Wonka freed the pygmies, but maintained his morbid fascination with little people. He would, until the end of his public days, only hire dwarves. Reports claim he forced them to sing and dance for him while engaging in Orange Face. After this big controversy and years of scandals like it, Wonka knew he had to do something to turn the tide of public opinion. The year was 1973. Richard M. Nixon was playing at his war games in Indochina, throwing away the lives of countless young men. Secretariat won the Triple Crown. The Exorcist was haunting moviegoers all across the globe, and the world was still mourning the loss of the universally beloved pop Scooby-Doo. In a global society yearning for bright sunshine and a time of darkness, Willy Wonka announced a contest with the Golden Promise. Amongst the hundreds of thousands of candy bars shipped to consumers are five glistening golden tickets. Whoever is lucky enough to unwrap this sweet surprise is offered free admission to the legendary Wonka factory. Riots break out as the masses clamor for a glimpse behind the secretive walls Wonka has built around himself in the preceding years. After an exhaustive search, the winners are Augustus Gloop, Veruca Salt, Violet Beauregard, Mike TV, and after some time, Charlie Bucket. In typical fashion, the winners arrive at the gates to much fanfare, and the enigmatic Willy Wonka emerges from the foreboding oaken doors. This recently uncovered archival interview from the BBC gives the perspective of an attendee that day. 
He first walked out looking like a slowpoke. He didn't seem to have that typical Wonka razzle. In fact, I wasn't entirely sure that he was alive and well until he cast his candy cane to the side and did a, a whatchamacallit? A somersault. After that, the five kids walked in with him like a bunch of little sweethearts. Five kids may have walked into the factory that day, but only one walked out victorious. Where did the others go? It has never been confirmed what happened that day, but regardless, the Suck My Fan Theory team is insistent on revealing what happened with absolute certainty. Many claim to have seen the children that lost leave the factory maimed and physically deformed hours after they entered into Wonka's Wonderland. Others swear that the original children were still in the factory, replaced by crisis actors, and they say they've got the evidence to prove it. Some of these actors have come forward under the guise of anonymity for their safety to tell the truth. Yeah, I was a child actor. In fact, my first gig was in one of Wonka's commercials. He must have taken some sick interest in me because he kept asking me back to act in other things. He took interest in a lot of kids. They'd come over to the factory, spend the night with him, even without their parents. Finally, after he announced the competition, he called up my parents and told them he had a job for me scheduled the day of the tour. I showed up and they painted me blue and then wrapped this large paper mache sphere around me. All I had to do was act upset and waddle to a limo. After that, I never heard from him again. Thank God, he always creeped me out. I'm just lucky I never spent the night with him. All of my friends would tell me about weird things that would go on. I don't care how popular and beloved you are, parents shouldn't leave their kid alone with any adult that likes to be around kids that much. There you have it. Irrefutable testimony from a crisis actor privy to Wonka's red-hot schemes. But if actors played the parts of the other golden ticket-winning children, what happened to the real children? We know that Wonka had a reputation for hurting other people. Is it possible that the children never left the factory, destined to the ill fate of a candy wrapper themselves? According to some fan theorists, Willy Wonka not only knew Charlie would win the factory, he always intended to use the other children as ingredients for his decadent delights. These claims have left many sane, the candy man can't. Consider Charlie Bucket, a poor boy that happened to live just around the corner from the Wonka chocolate factory. The rest of the children lived all around the world. Isn't it convenient that Charlie would get a ticket? Also, how could Wonka expect a child from the United States to move to London and take over a business? Willy Wonka wanted a child near him, one that he could groom, that would move into his factory without hesitation. If this were the case, though, why have the four other tickets? Simple. To murder the children and use them in his candy. Think about when the children and their parents first enter the factory. They are asked to sign waivers, totally absolving Mr. Wonka from any retribution if the children are harmed. Next, the children are taken to a large room fit with edible teacups, lollipops growing from the ground, and a chocolate river. When gluttonous Augustus Gloop begins drinking from the river, Wonka panics. When Augustus falls in, struggling to stay afloat, Wonka is only concerned about the quality of his chocolate. Being sucked into a pipe, the rest of the kids are told that Augustus is being sent to the fudge room, never to be seen again. Fudge room, coded language for another one of Wonka's twisted perversions. Wonka then calls for a boat, a boat with just enough seats for the four children, their single parent guardian, and himself. 
If he intended for all contestants to survive, he would have needed a bigger boat. Next, they are shown the greatest tasting gum ever invented, though it isn't fit for human consumption. Violet Beauregard, a well-documented gum addict, was chosen seemingly at random. Why would Wonka share this dangerous candy with an at-risk youth? His apathetic attempts to stop her prove he was not legitimately concerned with Violet's safety. It is safe to assume that as she turned blue, she was infused with all of the blueberry favor needed to flavor hundreds of thousands of pieces of gum. The sadistic Oompa Loompas cheerfully rolled her to her grave as they took her to the juicing room. Violet's addiction was destined to blow up sooner or later. After this, the remaining children and their parents are taken to see the Golden Geese. Veruca, a spoiled brat, obsessed with the glitz and glam, demanded to her father and to Wonka that she didn't care how, but she wanted a Golden Goose at that moment. Her greed was enough for Wonka's machines to pass judgment upon the poor, unfortunate girl that she was a, quote, bad egg. We can only assume that she was used to fill chocolate eggs, her father included. The tour then proceeds to the Wonka-mobile, a contraption with only five seats, again, enough for two children, their parents, and one for Wonka himself. This was, of course, before Mike TV shrunk himself into a perfect bite-sized snack. When considering all of this information, we see a killer who is not only deliberate in his actions, but calculated, shifting the guilt to the children themselves. This entire theory is even more sadistic when you consider that Wonka was only looking for an heir to pin the bodies to. If Charlie was going to inherit the factory and Wonka's wealth, he was also going to inherit Wonka's trail of bodies. Not only was Wonka guilty of stealing intellectual property, subjecting a whole tribe of people to indentured servitude, and murdering many children, he was also guilty of being sexist. He never considered giving the factory over to Violet and Veruca. Willy Wonka only employed male Oompa Loompas. He may have had a glass elevator, but was obviously too afraid to break the glass ceiling. We here at Suck My Fan Theory have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Willy Wonka was a sadistic and evil businessman. A man who built his company on the candy-coated backs of millions. A racist, sexist cannibal by today's standards, and horrible in ways worse than can be conjured through pure imagination. Though the man left many broken in his path, not all hope is lost. A group of Wonka survivors have formed a support community to process this traumatic experience through various artistic mediums, the culmination of which being the forthcoming documentary, Leaving Wonka Land. The following is an excerpt from their most recent public workshop. Oompa, loompa, doompa doo I've got a lie that's been hidden from you. Oompa, loompa, if you are woke, you will listen to me. What do you get when you murder some kids? Stealing ideas when others have dibs. Wonka forced us to do terrible acts. What will you do when you face these facts? He even sexed my girlfriend. Oompa, loompa, doompa dee da. 
If you don't believe him, you will go far. You will live in happiness too. Unlike the Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Doo. Aubrey, I really miss you. Around the world, report inconsistencies in our favorite stories. Are they real, or just a result of having way too much time on your hands? Join us next time as we continue to search for answers on Suck My Fan Theory. <laughs> <laughs>